Let's turn together, please, to Colossians chapter 2. We continue today working through our verse-by-verse study of Colossians. We will, as is our custom, take a break for Advent season, which is upon us. It's hard to believe, right? How many of you love the holiday seasons as much as I do? No, you don't. I love them way more than you. Um, I love Thanksgiving Day. I love Christmas Day. I love the whole season. I particularly love Advent once we get past uh, Thanksgiving and our focus on the mystery of the incarnation and all that means for our faith. So I can't wait to celebrate that season with you all again. We'll have a sermon series and develop our liturgy around Advent, and we're looking forward to, uh, to that time with you. Just a little thing to stick away in your head. We will have a Christmas Eve service again this year um, on Tuesday evening, so I encourage you to start thinking and praying about who you can invite to that. That was a great outreach opportunity for us last year, and so we're looking forward to that again and celebrating together. But today we continue in Colossians chapter 2. Pastor Rick last week began chapter 2 by working through verses 1 through 3, and today we will focus on verses 4 and 5. When we are in this kind of literature, which is a letter, an epistle, it does us well to slow down a little bit. When we work through narrative portions of Scripture, let's say like the Gospels or the book of Acts, we tend to take larger chunks because we're dealing with big stories, but Whenever we work through these letters, we're dealing with really tight logic. And if we're not careful and we go too fast, we will miss some of the details and better said, some of the treasure that is here for us. So today, we will take our time to work through Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. And as you see behind me on the screen, I have entitled this sermon, On Danger and Delight. So this is a sermon on danger, and delight. I think that'll be more clear as we work through the text. These two words present for us a tension. In this text, Paul will both subtly warn the church in Colossae, and thereby us today, and he will at the same time show them how much he delights in them for who they are and how they live, and likewise, a second kind of delight. He not only delights in them, but he points them back and commends them for what they delight in. And so Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, present for us attention. Paul, all at the same time, warns them about dangers that are in their midst, things they must be aware of because they're perilous. And yet, at the same time, he commends them for finding their greatest treasure for delighting in Jesus, who is the greatest delight and treasure that there is. There's a tension here. Life is like that all the time, right? We can wake up in the morning and feel like it's the worst of days, but something happens about 10 a.m., and by lunch, if someone were to say to you, how's your day going, you'd say, hey, it's going really, really well. And then by evening time, if something happened 
bad in the afternoon. Somebody might say, how was your day? And you say, it was awful. Life can go up and down like that. We live in tension a lot of the time between danger and joy, between happiness and sorrow. And Paul brings that tension out for us here in this text. I love the honesty of it. I have spoken to you often about how much my family loves to spend time in the mountains. One of the things that Whitney and I decided so many years ago is that we needed to find something that we could do together where we wouldn't tear each other's heads off. Um, So she has things she's way better at than me. We tried running for a while. I mean, just look at her and me, right? Um, that, That was fun, but she was way better at that than me. Um, We talked about tennis. I would slaughter her at tennis. Uh, So we had to find something that would be like in between. So we decided we would backpack together. Uh, She's in the nursery, by the way, so uh, anything I say poorly, please don't tell her. Um, So we decided we would backpack together. And so a number of years ago, we went out and spent time near Aspen, Colorado, on this multi-day trip around uh, some of the large mountains near Aspen. One of the best things, one of the best three- or four-day periods we've ever spent in our lives. What happens whenever you take these trips in, in the higher peaks of the Rockies is that you sometimes end up in relatively perilous places. So on this particular trip, we had to go over four mountain passes. And one of those passes we went over, a, a hailstorm came in. And you do not want to be at the high peaks like around noontime whenever lightning storms come in. So we came over. We had to top over this. There's no way to get where we had to go unless we went over. It was relatively perilous. We, were, we weren't panicking, but it was one of those moments where you know that you're, you're probably not in the best place you can be. But as we came over that mountain pass and down into a valley, it was one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen because the sun came out. And shone on these peaks, which are, they're called the maroon bells because the rock there sort of has a red cast to it. When the sun hits it just right, the mountains look sort of like a dark red. It's, it's beautiful. So within a span of like 15 or 20 minutes, we went from a relatively dangerous place where we could have slipped off the side of the mountain to a valley where the sun was shining and the mountains were beautiful and we were all alone within a area of like dozens if not hundreds of square miles there was no one else around and only we got to see that and and that's the tension of life sometimes things are are really dangerous and we have to be really on guard and and like the the hair on our on our arms stands up because we recognize the the peril around us and then the next moment we can feel like things are going really, really well and things are be, to, to be commended and enjoyed. And, and Paul brings that, that tension out here in this text. So let me read it to you and then I'm going to give you a little bit of context from where we've been and where we're going. And then I'll give you a brief and simple outline for how we can understand this. This is God's Word. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you, deceive you, delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. What does Paul mean in verse 4 when he says, I say this? Well, this refers back to what we studied together last week. And the point that Paul makes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, 
is that he struggles on their behalf. He works hard, which really takes us back to the end of chapter 1 as well. He's willing to lay his life down at great personal cost to encourage them together, to, to be knit together, to find their greatest joy in Christ. He wants them to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, Colossians 2, verse 2. And he goes further in verse 3 and says, "...in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And he wants them together to experience that, to embrace it, to deeply hold this conviction that nothing else and no one else can satisfy them like Jesus can. This is what He wants for them. So He says all of this, beginning in verse 4, so that no one may delude them or deceive them. And so Paul is leading us to this conclusion. There are often dangers around us and among us, which will threaten our hold, our conviction that Jesus is our greatest treasure. So therefore, verse 4, we come to this conclusion. We must be on guard together against dangerous, false gospels. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that he wants their hearts to be knit together in love. This is to characterize this church in Colossae. And, my brothers and sisters, it is to characterize our church. Together, we must be on guard against dangerous false gospels. Let's talk about dangerous false gospels first. And then we will talk about how we do this together, why it's important that we be knit together in unity. What are the false gospels against which we must be aware? In Colossae, it was probably some synthesis, some bringing together of Jewish legalism, a, a rigid keeping of the law in order that God would be pleased with them, and then some, some local mythical folklore, somewhat mystical. And when you take this mysticism and you take the legalism and you put it together, it had it infiltrated the church to some degree, or at least was close to the boundaries of the church, that they were under threat. And Paul wanted them to be very careful that they held fast to the true gospel. That the second person of the Godhead... Son of God, had taken on flesh, lived the life that they would not and could not live, died in their place to take their punishment, was buried and rose again, therefore offering all who will trust Him His righteousness and forgiveness from sin. And this one who did all of this, Jesus Christ, is, He will go on to say, the fullness of God, and in Him we have been filled. We will find this in the following verses as we go forward the next few weeks. 
So if Christ who died in our place and offers us forgiveness and eternal life is the fullness of God and has accomplished all that we need both now and for eternity, and if we trust Him, we will be filled in Him who is the fullness of God, the question that we ask, and we have posed it before, is what do we lack? And the answer again is nothing. But Paul is concerned that, that this false synthesis of, of rigid legalism in order to gain God's favor and, and mystical sort of insight into the world around you that had risen up in the folkloric traditions of these Gentile cities, that this synthesis of bad doctrine was going to, to delude or deceive the Colossians' hearts. So we do have to ask ourselves what our forms of this today. We continue to see forms of legalism around us. Legalism is a tricky thing because the, the left edge of legalism is plausible. In other words, we, we should pursue God's rules, God's laws, right? When God tells us to not murder, we shouldn't murder. When God tells our young people to obey their parents, they should obey their parents. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't commit adultery. We should honor God above all other things. We should pursue rest. And there's a whole lot of other things that God expects of us. But do we do these things in order that we might gain God's favor? And the answer is no. Because there is nothing that we can do to gain God's favor. Someone else has gained God's favor for us, and His name is Jesus. We possess no inherent righteousness. Jesus offers us what theologians through the centuries have called alien righteousness. In other words, it is outside of us. And we can only receive it by faith. And when God looks at us, His people, those of us who have placed our faith in the righteousness of Jesus, He is pleased with us. Now, should we obey God? The answer is yes. But do we obey God in order to gain His favor? The answer is no. And therefore, we live in this tension, don't we? But there was a threat in Colossae that was calling these folks to keep the rules so that God would love them and accept them. And that is not the gospel. The good news is that we sinners can be in right relationship with God because of the righteousness of another, not our own. And so this shows up among us all the time. The reality is most of us don't like the notion of, of alien righteousness being our only hope because that says something about us. It subtly communicates to us that there is not only good news, there is also bad news. Because if I need the righteousness of another, it says something about my own inherent goodness, which is that I don't have any, and that bothers us. And even those of us who can articulate a Christian gospel very well, 
we struggle with this notion that left to ourselves, we're actually not good. And if we do not embrace tenaciously the hope that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to God, we will seek our own goodness in order that God and man will like us. In other words, if we collectively, and therefore also individually, are not consistently finding our hope in the righteousness of Jesus, we will seek for it in other places. We can't help it. It's like gravity. So what happens when we forget Christ? What happens when we, when we stop dwelling and meditating and appreciating all that He has done for us? We will find our goodness and righteousness in other fashions. Now, what we intuitively discern over time is that we can't keep up that game very long before God. So we start ignoring Him, and we start horizontally comparing ourselves to each other. We do this in our marriages, don't we? A marriage is that, is not, that is not centered on the righteousness of Jesus will consistently be one that is full of bickering and comparison. You will highlight your partner's weaknesses, and you will elevate your own personal strengths. Ever been there? Like maybe within the past couple of hours? This happens in our churches, too. We elevate the things that we are relatively good at, our, our spheres of ministry where, where our gifts get put on display. And we diminish the things that we're actually not that good at and ignore them. And what this breeds is, a, is a, an environment that is constantly full of bad tension, stress, where I'm mostly just thinking about myself and finding ways to think poorly of you. Such an environment is not one that can last very long. It's brittle, it's not enjoyable, and people will eventually run away from it. It also breeds all kinds of guilt, layer upon layer of shame, and it makes you constantly skittish because you're always looking over your shoulder, seeing if someone is really discovering just how empty you actually are. What's the opposite of all of this? It's people that deeply find rest in Jesus and do it on such a consistent basis that they are delighted to remind each other that they are not that big of a deal. Talk about yourself that way. And then when you see your brother or sister struggling or failing or not measuring up, you are prone to liberally apply the hope of the gospel to them as well. And you know what that kind of atmosphere breeds? Rest. Joy. Love. It's a welcoming environment where people want to stay and want to come in. Paul was concerned that that rigid legalism would creep into the midst of the Colossian church, and he wanted to put them on guard against it. So I say to you, my, my friends today, if we pose the hypothetical rhetorical question, 
Does God want us to, even in the new covenant, resting in the righteousness of Jesus, does He want us to obey Him? The answer is unequivocally, yes. But will we always, and will we always perfectly? And the answer is no. And when we don't, not if we don't, but when we don't, we are not undone because our hope is in Jesus. Be on guard, my friends, against the notion that you can do anything to earn God's favor and do not treat people with a standard that God does not treat you with. We also have to be on guard against other more subtle gospels. In our middle, upper middle class, western context, does not our culture constantly preach to us? You see, preaching doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings in church buildings. Preaching is going on all of the time. Our culture is constantly preaching to us messages of of affluence, that having enough, attaining all that you can, cannot make you ultimately happy. Now, that's a mature perspective on such cultural preaching. But the truth of the matter is, the culture all around us is telling us that, that more wealth and more comfort will ultimately bring us satisfaction. And all of us have tried that, and it always comes up empty. The culture proclaims to us other gospels, such as tolerance, tolerance of all. The culture teaches us that all ways to God, all ways back to God, are equally viable. And these false gospels of comfort and wealth, of of tolerance, of believing that everybody is welcome to believe all that they want to believe and they'll all end up fine. These and more are false gospels that they are constantly being preached into our ears. And we do have to take stock from time to time to determine whether or not we are giving in to these false gospels. And usually it happens very subtly. Notice that Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 4 that these gospels are plausible It's usually not a full frontal assault. Most of us are not tomorrow going to be confronted by, let's say, a Muslim who gives us the message of Islam and convert by Tuesday. It's not usually going to be that dramatic and that kind of frontal assault. It's usually going to be something that that masquerades subtly as a Christian gospel, but is a few degrees off. N.T. Wright, who has written a helpful short commentary on the book of Colossians, says this, such plausible arguments, it's teaching that is near enough to the truth to be apparently respectable and far enough away from it to be devastating in its effect on individuals and congregations. It It sounds right, but it's subtly wrong. And weeks, months, perhaps years later, it has devastating consequences on individuals and congregations. New England congregationalism of the 17th and 18th century is a 
perfect cautionary tale for us to consider. As you look back at American history in the 17th and 18th centuries in New England, you think that everybody was wearing like robes and having Bibles in their hands all the time and chanting Scripture, and they never broke any rules. We tend to give the Puritans from England who came over eventually to England a a bad rap, like they were the people who just walked around miserable all the time. The truth of the matter is that they were relatively robust in their faith, finding great joy in God, sometimes rigid, admittedly. But what happened to the later Puritans who occupied New England and created what we would call New England Congregationalism? It would have been reformed in its understanding of the gospel, but pretty congregational in its church government. These churches, which for a number of decades were robust in promoting discipleship in the colonies, eventually fell apart altogether. In fact, if you were to go to most former New England Congregationalist churches today, They're gift stores or United Unitarian churches that don't believe the gospel at all. How can that be? How can former bastions of of evangelical faith now be places where you cannot find the gospel at all? Because somewhere along the line, plausible arguments were embraced, and eventually the gospel was denied altogether. Why the communal aspect to this, where Paul from our verses last week tells them that he wants them to be knit together in love? Why must we be doing this together? Well, first, because we encourage and exhort one another. It's hard, frankly, impossible to walk this life alone. You cannot do it. People who live on the periphery of the church are always in mortal danger. They are easily picked off. Why? Because we're weak. We weren't meant to walk alone. We help each other to see false narratives that we are believing. If you cut yourself off from Christian community, you end up just being an echo chamber who only ever hears your own voice. But when you welcome people into your life, they can provide a vantage point, a narrative, to help you understand how you are living. Such living is humble. Such living is meek. Such living is wise. It is not wise. It is not humble. It is not meek to cut yourself off from those who can help you. This is one of the reasons why our church takes discipleship so seriously. Not so that we can control people, not so that we can dictate how they make every decision, but because we want to come alongside you We want to give you biblical truth, and we want to be your friends. This is how discipleship is to function, where friends willingly and lovingly spend time together and help each other along their journey. That's when discipleship really thrives. So, my friends, if you live or are living often on the fringes of the church, be careful. Come back in. Let us find ways to come alongside you and help you, and and then you can do that for us too because this is a mutual experiment. Paul warned the church about their propensity, their tendency toward plausible arguments which would delude them or deceive them, and he wanted them to do this together. So let's do it together. Let's be on guard. 
We have to be people of the Word. We have to know what God says. This is why we take the Bible so seriously here. This is why we don't skip things. Frankly, this is why we preach the way we do. We don't want to skip anything so that, so that we can't miss what God intends for us. You don't need Rick and I to get up here on a regular basis and just give you our opinions. That's dangerous for you. We want to explore over, over years and even decades the whole counsel of God's Word so we can know it and then we can remind each other of it in love. Because remember, when Paul calls them to be knit together in verse 2, he calls them to be knit together in love, right? This is not judgmentalism. This is not one-upping each other. We've already cautioned against that kind of atmosphere. May the Lord make us the kind of church that that recognizes and stands against plausible false gospels together. Paul reminded the, the elders in Ephesus of this in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I commend our elders as the kind of men, because I spend time with them regularly, who care this way about you. They care deeply about who you are and, and what you're believing And and I also want to challenge our elders here today. We can never give up on this. We have a responsibility to to be vigilant, to be diligent, to know that false gospels are being preached to our folks all of the time. We must ourselves recognize them, and we must with love and courage call them out. So let us not be deceived, brothers and sisters. False gospels are all around us clamoring for our attention, screaming for our devotion. They will often seem very plausible, but the way of these doctrines lead to death, and we must be on guard. Verse 5 leads us to another conviction. We must not only be on guard together against dangerous false gospels, we must secondly be determined together to pursue Jesus as our greatest treasure. Verse 5, Paul says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, he's concerned that they might be led astray, verse 4. However, verse 5, his opinion of them is that currently they are holding fast. He uses military metaphors here. This good order is the idea of having your ranks in line so that the enemy can't break through and outflank you. The firmness of their faith was this conviction that even in the midst of a a heated battle, they would not give in. You may have heard this story before, but in the Battle of the Bulge, this would have been after D-Day as the Allies got a foothold in, in northwestern Europe and began coming down through France into Belgium and Luxembourg so that they could come toward the German border. The Germans, under Hitler's maniacal rage, uh, sent out one last major offensive. This was called the Battle of the Bulge. It's up in sort of like 
northern area of France into Luxembourg and Belgium. They sent this massive uh, offensive against the Allies to try to drive them back into the sea. There was a particular town at a crossroads near the border of Luxembourg, which is really important. It wasn't a huge town, but the road network went through there. It was called Bastogne. And for a number of days in December of 1944, this city was under siege, and it got to the point that the Allies, particularly American troops, the 101st Airborne mostly in particular, was under threat of being annihilated and wiped out. And if they could take Bastogne, they could take control of the road network and perhaps fulfill their objective, at least bringing the, the uh, war to a stalemate in Western Europe. So the uh, Germans had the upper hand for a while. The Allies were running out of supplies. They were being bombarded by artillery shelling. And so at one point in December, the Germans sent four uh, military personnel, two officers and two enlisted men to come to the uh, edge of Bastogne and to deliver a message to the commander there that it was time for them to surrender. So they wake the, the, the general up and they tell him that there's these four Germans that they now have blindfolded and I think tied to a tree somewhere so they didn't know exactly where headquarters was and wanted his response to, to this message. And his response was one word, nuts, which back in the 1940s was his way of saying, heck no. In fact, whenever they brought the English message to the German guard, to these German personnel, they didn't understand it. They, the uh, personnel who drove them in the Jeep back to their front lines had to translate it for them in somewhat more colorful language, which basically says we are never giving up and never giving in. Eventually, the skies cleared because the weather had been really bad. The early American Air Force came in and began shelling the German artillery, and then Patton's Third Army came in and took over Bastogne, and the Battle of the Bulge turned, and then the war turned, perhaps the most pivotal moment in the war in the Western theater. This message to the Germans, nuts, we're not giving up, was a message of firmness, and it found its way down through the ranks and kept the enlisted men who were staying against the German onslaught, it kept them going, and it gave them courage. We must be careful to make sure that our ranks are in good order, that we are not giving in. We must pay attention to not only the strongest among us, but to the weakest, to make sure that they are pursuing Christ and finding health as they grow in Him, and that we together will stand firm. My friends, our culture around us is not becoming any more optimistic about the Christian faith. It's becoming increasingly hostile to what we believe. But will we give in? Will one day our church be a gift shop? Will one day our church be a place where the gospel is rejected altogether? It's not impossible. That could happen here. But notice that Paul in verse 5 is striking a tone of, of hopeful optimism. He's not with them literally because he's in prison, but he's with them in spirit, and he rejoices in how they are pursuing Christ. Paul is such a marvel. We often look at Paul as just a rigid guy who's super, super tough. But as we will find here in this letter, especially as we get into chapter 4, Paul is never slack, he's never reticent to encourage and to affirm those that he loved. 
So all at once in verse 4, he can, he can warn them with strength. At the same time in verse 5, with tender love, he can say, but you're doing well. And I'm proud of you is sort of what he's saying here. And so I say to you on behalf of our elders here, it is a joy to shepherd this church. We know that we can get up and preach the gospel to you with courage because you want us to. And if we stopped, you'd fire us. That's good pressure. So I say to you, my friends, be on guard. But the truth of the matter is, as we see your trajectory, it is marked by firmness of faith. And for this, we are so very thankful. What's the conviction that the church in Colossae held? And what was it that Paul wanted them to continue to hold on to? It's what we studied last week in verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is the greatest treasure. Jesus teaches us about this in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Probably know these sayings of Jesus relatively well, so I will not parse them in great detail. But Jesus is just simply saying, what I have come to offer you far outstrips anything the world can satisfy you with. So find your greatest joy in me. And again, we must do this together, right? When we see brothers or sisters who who begin to wander a bit, who begin to grow a little slack in their faith, who grow weary in well-doing, because we all do at one point, we come alongside them with love and courage, and we say, my brother, my sister, don't be deceived. Don't be deluded. These false gospels which are, which are preaching in your ear, they can't satisfy you. Only Jesus can. Let us, let us pursue Him together. And so this text holds for us great tension. Let us be on guard together against dangerous false gospels. And let us be determined together to pursue Jesus as our greatest treasure. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6 quickly because I want you to see this tension in another text and then we'll close. Hebrews chapter 6 is famously one of the passages in our New Testaments which warn people against apostasy, against turning against Christ. So here's a sampling of verses. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. For it is impossible, the author says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have heard the gospel and seemingly have believed it, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In other words, if you have embraced the gospel and then turned from it, there's not a lot of hope for you. That's a dire warning, and I will not take time to parse this one out either. We can talk after the service if you'd like to understand how I understand this. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't leave it there because he goes on in verse 9 with great tension to say, 
Though we speak in this way, with stern warnings in other words, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. And so, verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Are there mortal dangers all around us? The answer is yes. But beloved, when it comes to you, we think better things. And God will be faithful to honor your faith and keep us together strong. So, from Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we must live in this tension, being aware that there are false gospels preaching to us all the time, and we must together be on guard. But let us be determined together to pursue Jesus as our greatest treasure, and we see you doing that. May God's Spirit enable us and help us as we do it together in the future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by your Spirit you will take these important words and you would plant them deeply in our minds, that you would cause us to embrace them with our hearts, that we would be on guard, vigilant against those things which would lead us astray toward false gods, false gospels, and empty treasure. Instead, may we find our greatest treasure in Jesus alone. May we rehearse the gospel over and over together. So may we be vigilant together. May we find our greatest treasure in Jesus together. Do this, we pray, for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our mutual joy. Amen.